0: Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome back once again to Spooky Psychology with just Megan. At the moment we don't actually have a guest host this time, so it's just me. I hope we're all okay with that but want to make it very clear i don't intend on doing two episodes a month for the rest of lauren's maternity leave but Since today is Halloween, I could not leave you guys hanging, so I think this one's gonna be a little bit shorter than usual, but I thought this Halloween it would be super fun to take a brief dive into the psychology of some Halloween-type stuff. So I know we have our Halloween episode from last year. If you guys would like to hear more about haunted houses and horror movies, this one is gonna cover a bit of horror movies, but more specifically, we're going to be talking about fear and some different monsters. We definitely cover fear more in our previous Halloween episode as well as our episode on phobias but we're just gonna talk a bit so I'll go quick overview of fear and then I'm gonna do a little bit about horror movies just as a recap and then today we're gonna talk about mummies zombies, and vampires, which I think are three very different monsters, but very associated with Halloween. And I have some interesting observations. We're also going to talk a bit about, once again, the survey of American fears. One, Of the monsters we're going to talk about does actually count in the top 100 fears in America. We're also going to talk about what the top fears are just for fun. has nothing to do with monsters, but I find it interesting. So here we go. As we've talked about before, fear is a pretty vital response to our physical and emotional well-being. It's important. You know, fear helps us recognize danger and help us recognize life or death situation. However, as we all know, fear does not only come along with life or death situations. That's the evolutionary psychology explanation for this is that humans have a genetic predisposition to fear things that would be a threat to our ancestors like snakes, spiders, heights, water, but there's really no way to prove that. We do know that people who have an immediate family member with a specific phobia are more likely to have the same one. We also know that about 60% of adults admit to having at least one unreasonable fear, but we're not really sure why these fears manifest. I personally have multiple Uh, unreasonable fears. Fun fact, I'm actually scared of butterflies and moths. Everybody makes fun of me about it. I don't care. I know it's unreasonable but they weird me out and I always scream just a little bit if they fly too close to my head. A lot of us have these different fears that really don't directly relate to danger, so it is kind of interesting. There are also personality traits such as neuroticism, which appear to increase your likelihood of developing a phobia, and a tendency toward worries and negative thoughts also increase the risk. There's some additional theories that people who have a lot of phobias and fears are more likely to have overprotective parents, the loss of a parent, which could explain some of my fears, um, or any childhood abuse. But I think really what we know is that There are multiple pathways to fear, including emotional response and disgust. Moths and butterflies for me are a lot more of a disgust-based fear versus a life-threatening. So the interesting thing I think about fear is that this time of year, we tend to seek it out. And there's a lot of theories as to why we do this, right? During Halloween or the spooky season, as I prefer to call it, the entire month of October and also the entire fall, we tend to flood to scary movies, scary TV shows, haunted houses, but as our spooky psychology podcast really does demonstrate, you know, people really enjoy those stuff all year round. A lot of us do have a fascination with, you know, serial killers, murders, different types of things throughout the year. So, you know, and roller coasters are another one. So, some research suggests that these scary experiences done in a safe way actually can boost our mood the scare response we have is very sincere however we do know that we're safe and there's that instant relief and enjoyment that can stick with us for quite a while now as it goes and we talked about this a bit i'll talk a bit about horror movies just to recap last halloween but you know Carl Jung really had this theory about archetypes which are universal and cross-cultural themes that help form one's personality and our behavior. One of the important ones is the shadow self. So the shadow self is kind of those dark animalistic urges that people really do have. It's the unknown repressed ideas, weaknesses, and chaos. The shadow is unacceptable traits to society that are sometimes offensive to our morals and ethics so you know being able to watch horror movies is a way for us or you know even horror movies haunted houses serial killer documentaries it's a way for us to kind of explore that darker part of ourselves in a very safe and controlled manner right you may be fascinated with murder but it's against your morals to actually kill someone so you just watch a lot of documentaries instead of murdering people Which we can all agree is very much the right call, don't kill people. So scary movies typically focus on inducing feelings of shock, horror, and disgust. So a different Freudian interpretation. Side note, I think one of the funnest things about this research is that the psychological explanations for our obsession with monsters and some of the scary stuff really fall heavily on like old school psychological theory which we very rarely rarely get to talk about because i mean it's not like freud is super relevant anymore but one of the things that freud did that actually is still relevant is he proposed the concept of catharsis where a release of strong or repressed emotions is therapeutic so that again You get that feeling of catharsis, you get to release these strong emotions through fear in a way that you know is safe. Now interestingly enough, this is some brand new research from Scrivener et al. 2021, so this is like hot off the press, did a study and they reported that people who like horror movies feel less anxiety and fear related to the coronavirus pandemic that we're all going through. They're proposing that experienced negative emotions during the film allows us to cope better with this large societal fear that we have in a really safe and controlled environment Therefore, we feel more prepared to handle it in reality, which, again, is reminiscent of Freud's suggestion that the ego gains a sense of mastery over difficult, harmful, or scary situations through repeated fearful exposure. I am super curious if anybody feels like their love of horror movies and spooky stuff actually helps them feel less anxious about the pandemic? Let me know. I think it's really interesting because so many of us, it's like when things are going to shit in the world, if we really have been obsessed with this stuff, it's like I knew it. I absolutely knew it. I'm so prepared for this. So, okay. So this is some interesting stuff just about the concept of monsters that I did find. Um A lot of the research I was going was based off of Leo Brody. So Leo Brody is a professor of English art history, film, and history at USC Dornslife College of Letters, Arts, and Science. He's a monster expert and the author of Haunted on Ghosts, Witches, Vampires, Zombies, and Other Monsters of the Natural and Supernatural Worlds. So clearly he talks a lot about the three monsters that I would like to talk about today, and interestingly enough, almost every article that I found did end up quoting him, so apparently this is some really important work in the field of monsters right now. So direct quote from him is, children love fairy tales for the same reason we all love frightening stories, because they allow us some kind of mastery. They're comforting, but also titillating, certainly for adults. It's the idea of you escaped. So in h- in his book He actually divides monsters into four separate categories, which I find a really interesting distinction. There's the monster from nature, which embodies our fear of an uncontrollable natural world that has two groups, the mysterious, elusive, but ultimately less threatening monsters like Sasquatch, the Yeti, or the Loch Ness Monster, and more menacing specimens like Godzilla or King Kong, so there's the fear that nature will take her revenge for everything. Thing that we have done against nature. The second type of monster is kind of associated with our fear of science, of so something like Frankenstein. The type of monster is created purposefully by a scientist whose hubris leads him to, to bring to life an unprecedented being, so kind of that mad scientist fear that humans are going to create something that will ultimately destroy us or be really dangerous. And then there's what he calls the Jekyll and Hyde monster, which, you know, obviously Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, appeared in the late 1880s is one of several doppelganger figures, people with double lives or double selves, that reflects complex late Victorian view of human psychology in terms of the fears of the monstrousness of our repressed self, so kind of the monster from within theory. Then there's finally, there's the monster from the past that arrives to take revenge on us and our modern lives, improvement and change, so something like Dracula, right? Vampires we tend to associate with being really old vampires, even in one of my favorite shows, What We Do in the Shadows, right? Other than Colin Robinson, they are pretty old vampires. They're kind of ancient creatures, which is very funny in the mockumentary style. If you guys haven't watched What We Do in the Shadows, I strongly recommend it. So that is interesting, and I'll talk a little bit more about his research as we break into these specific monsters, but there, they are these categories of monsters we created that represent different fears that we all have. His conclusion is that our love of monsters is revealing, showing us how preoccupied we are with death and mortality. Our obsession with monsters provides the counterbalance to, you know, change in funerary practices. So, you know... The idea that death is now medicalized and sanitized. This is kind of the counterbalance of like unpredictable things because now most people die at hospitals, at least in America, and it's we're very removed from the idea of death, whereas people often used to die in their homes and the funeral services would happen in homes. It's a huge societal shift. But the concept of horror in movies keeps our mortality squarely in front of us and helps us explore the concept of our own mortality in a really safe way so getting into our first specific monster so I I am all about this I'm going to talk about vampires and the research into each of these monsters took me into slightly different places but what I love is that vampires and the concept of vampires are actually the most psychologically researched of the monsters that we're going to look today look at today and are honestly super freudian every single quote that i found from research papers was all freudian analytical so it's really interesting i'll kind of give you these direct quotes here when we talk about it but vampires it's often been said that the idea of vampires probably emerged out of fear of death particularly when people risk premature Burials, so kind of that idea of dead but not dead, like the living dead. With and modern vampire stories really tend to mix up blood and sex pretty frequently. So the mo- so a lot of psychoanalysts in explaining vampires have really, really again jumped onto Freud. So, I'm just going to directly quote some of these studies that are so fascinating. The first one, Rodriguez de la Sierra, Origin of the Myth of Vampirism, from the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicines from 1998. The myth can be understood among, along various levels of psychosexual development. In Edible terms, for example, the vampire is seen as the abductor of women, killing and enslaving any men who cross his path. The significance and universal persistence of the myth suggests deep roots in the evolution of our psyche. It suggests the omnipresent desire to conquer the secret life while containing the elements of its renewal. It represents the terrible desire for survival, destroying others to maintain his own existence. Vampirism, as a mortal sin, is contained in the image that most often comes to mind, the perverse nature of the vampiric act in which the bite and sucking of blood produce an orgasmic sensation which supersedes coitus. So, really interesting that they're talking about this kind of mix of the actual biting and sucking of blood being a very sexual act. Which, of course, anytime a weird sex thing comes up, people go straight to Freud in this really psychoanalytical context about our deep need for violence. Another, written by a... Henry C. Pop Vampires, Freud, and Primary Masochism in Psychoanalytic Review 2014 The popularity of the vampire figure Evidences a role for Freud's notion of the inherent primary masochism This erotic impulse is primitive in nature and seeming non edible. Vampire dramatizations are a convenient location for playing out these repressed tensions So in that it's about Pain. It's about wanting to receive pain. Masochism is receiving pain. Sadism is inflicting pain. And again, I find it interesting that in these two different studies, both referencing Freud, one specifically referencing that it's Oedipal in nature, and then this one saying it's definitely non-Oedipal and is more about our primitive sex drive. Fascinating. Everyone's bringing up Freud in different ways. This next quote is from Vandenberg R.L. In vampirism a review with new observations. So, Archives of General Psychiatry. This is from 1964. Vampirism is designed, is defined as the act of drawing blood from an object, usually a love object, and receiving resultant sexual aci- excitement and pleasure. The specific symptoms of vampirism have their dynamic basis not only in the unresolved conflicts at the oral sadistic level, but at other levels of libidinal development as well. Oedipal wishes, fear of castration, and aggressive hostile wishes are examples of many of, the, of these many unresolved conflicts We can be symbolized in the patient's mind by the blood. So. Again, really connecting this to oral fixation, fear of castration, aggressive hostility, a lot of what Freud talked about. Now, some of these were from the 60s, but some are more modern takes on it. So it is kind of interesting just to see how it changes. And I just love that intersection of Freudian psychoanalytics and research on vampires. Um, This is a non-research-based quote, but... True Blood creator Alan Ball summed up the Freudian relevance and popular appeal of vampires simply in a Rolling Stone article when he said, To me, vampires are sex, which is you have watched True Blood. They're pretty much just having sex all the time, so that makes sense from his perspective. Now, I think another thing that is interesting when it comes to, you know, vampires is that there are real cases of people essentially trying to live as vampires so um some serial killers have you know consumed blood as part of their act their killing acts and rituals And So there are legitimate cases of real life vampiric type activities in the context of sexual violence and murder. Now in addition to that, I'll read a little bit about that, but then there's also this thing about people who consider themselves vampires but do not actually act in a murderous way. So, I'll tell you more. I have a survey on that of people who do um you know in some cases they call themselves real vampires a lot. There's a self identity thing, so for some people, it may be more of a role play situation, but there are actual groups of vampires they have conferences, people who really do identify as vampires. but in this case, this is the dangerous side, not the more cultural exploration side. So in these cases, right, most clinicians view vampire-like behaviors as psychopathy and deviance. And the term clinical vampirism emerged in the 80s and 90s. So a, in 1984, Herschel Prinz, a social worker, surveyed forensic psychiatrists or psychiatrists psychiatrist with an interest in serious deviancy and concluded that vampirism was a clinical condition most associated with schizophrenia, hysteria, severe psychopathic disorder, and cognitive disabilities. He proposed that there were four categories of vampirism, including complete vampirism, which is ingestion of blood, necrophilia, and necrosadism. So that would be ingesting blood, sexual activities with corpses, and, you know, mutilation and violence towards corpses as well. A decade later, Philip Jaffe and Frank DiCaldo echoed that stating that clinical vampirism is a rare condition described in the forensic literature covering some of humanity's most shocking behaviors including necrophilia, sadism, cannibalism, and a fascination with blood. So there definitely have been some cases of people attempting to actually be vampires. But then there's this more like I said the cultural explanation of vampires, the people who identify as vampires. So, there is a study, it's the VEWRS and the A V E W R S, a a real introspective view into what people self-identify as real vampires. Most real vampires are adult, Caucasian, heterosexual, and have a self-reported IQ well above average. Of course, most people would honestly say that their IQ self-reported is above average. So, as opposed to the clinical vampirism, Quote, real vampires are actually mostly women, 63%, men are only 35%, only 35% identify as goth, 24% belong to an organized vampire group such as a house, clan, coven, haven, order, or court, and 52% of real vampires identified as sanguinarians who actually drink blood. 68 identify as psychic vampires who claim to take psychic energy from others either by touch or non-physical mean and 40% identified as both known in the vampire community as hybrids. Now I don't know a ton about this you know the, the people who identify as vampires but in a non-violent way but it is an interesting kind of subculture that does exist and I think it is you know different vampires as seen in the movies there's almost always a sexual component and i find it fascinating i like the psychoanalytical research with it because we rarely bring psychoanalysts into things but again it is just this fascinating thing because with vampires i don't know anybody who actually is scared of vampires anymore. I think they've gone mostly in media, right? Like, they're very sexual, there's a lot of stuff like Twilight where they're romantic, they're not really scary anymore, even though they technically could be. And I think we see that with a lot of monsters, right? The things people fear and the things we have in horror are very, very different, and I think there is a safety in exposing yourself to this violence in a way that you're not genuinely afraid of. Uh, Going back to Leo Brody, he said our modern day, uh, he agrees, right, that enthusiasm for vampires stems from our desire to avoid confronting our own morality. Direct quote, vampires have lived for thousands of years, have survived history, so they're simultaneously feared but admired because they represent for the moment a liberation from mortality right vampires do live forever and so it is this interesting psychological explanor- exploration for people which does involve fear but also doesn't cuz i don't know anyone that's actually afraid of vampires there probably are a few people but not many so the next group is that we're going to talk about today is zombies Now, zombies, I find so, so interesting. And personally, I think out of vampires, zombies, and mummies, I feel like zombies might be like a zombie-like virus, kind of influencing human behavior, I think is the most likely to be an actual threat. Um, Brody argues, Leo Brody argues that the zombie craze reflects our present day fear of groups. This is an era where we're less afraid of, you know, villains, like individuals who want to rule the world, and more afraid of the faceless, shadowy, anonymous groups that we can't quite pin down. So, this is another direct quote from Browdy. What's really different about the zombie and what separates it from the classic monsters is it's part of a collective, while other monsters are individuals. There's no hierarchy in the zombie world, no king zombie, so fear of zombies represents a fear modern fear of groups. They might be Islamic fundamentalists, immigrants, republics, democrats, you name it, whatever group frightens you. I think that's an interesting theory, right, because zombies are just kind of this horde, you know, if you look at different conspiracy theories that are really active right now, most of them are about shadowy groups that are controlling things or influencing the world that you don't directly know about. So a couple things on um, just the history of zombies, because I do like going into... Some history. The first zombie movie was White Zombie. It appeared in 1932 and was followed by a lot of zombie movies that really didn't make a lot of ground. It was at the release of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968 that zombie-centric entertainment really started to go. There have been over 500 zombie feature films, ranging from things like Shaun of the Dead, which is very light-hearted, it's funny, to genuinely terrifying renditions like The Dawn of the Dead. Zombies have also been celebrated in Thriller and in The Walking Dead is one of the most popular TV shows at the time of this writing. So zombies, I feel like again, and the similar with vampires, I feel like the initial vampire movies were pretty scary, but then we ended up with Twilight, with True Blood, with What We Do in the Shadows, all of these things getting kind of funny and lighthearted over time. Similar things have happened with zombies, right? Even Zombieland, like there's a lot more lighthearted movies, not necessarily like lighthearted like Shaun of the Dead, right, but some of the less fear. And kind of more loose interpretations or more lighter hearted movies related to these creatures. So, this is the perspective of Frank McAndrew. He's a professor of psychology at Knox College. Um, he's an evolutionary social psychologist and he studies creepiness. So,. The modern notion of what a zombie is can be traced to the Haitian voodoo folklore of the 17th and 18th centuries. It was rumored that African slaves on sugar plantations who committed suicide to escape slavery were denied entry into the eternal paradise and were condemned instead to trudge around the earth without a soul. Over time, this legend morphed into the voodoo belief that priests had the power to turn people into zombies. The individual chosen as a zombie to be would be poisoned, causing vital signs such as heartbeat and breathing to diminish to the point where the person appeared to be dead. The person would be buried alive, was later exhumed, and would remain under the spell forever. The person was usually brought back to life without speech or free will. So it seems like it kind of comes out of some of those early beliefs and you can kind of see people, you know, Condemned to be on the earth without a soul, you can see how that kind of connects into the idea of zombies. You know, another theory is that philosopher David Lingstone Smith believes that the potential for danger is not necessary for something to appear. So basically, with Frank McAndrew, he said the short version of what he found is that the ambiguity about whether we have something to fear from a person or place makes us uncomfortable because of the uncertainty. So with zombies, we're never quite sure. You know, it just relates to not being able to read people and not really being sure where the danger actually is. Whereas philosopher David Lingstone Smith proposes that the danger is not necessarily to a fear creepy he proposed a categorical ambiguity thesis to explain how we could be creeped out by something that does not pose a threat objects that are not easily categorized combine features that do not occur together this makes it so we can't properly make sense of them resulting in a cognitive paralysis we find unpleasant which is similar to so the uncanny valley, so the idea that a zombie is ambiguous, right? It's kind of human, kind of not, and that's where the discomfort comes from. Uncanny valley is well known in the field of aesthetics and was pioneered by Masahiro Mori, a Japanese professor of robotics, and the general theory of the uncanny valley is as an inanimate object comes to look more and act more like a human being, it usually becomes attractive to us until it becomes almost exactly like a human but not quite then it tends to prompt feelings of revulsion rather than attraction so you do kind of notice that with certain even like video game characters right as they get closer to looking like real people they get very unsettling and creepy to look at So The Uncanny Valley can explain some of our squeamishness about corpses, just like a normal human, except not alive. Unlike many monsters that haunt our imagination, zombies used to be human beings, and then something traumatic happened that transformed them into an eerily human and dangerously not human being. Zombies may even identify maintain their identity as the distinct humans that they were in their previous life, making them more creepy and sinister. So zombies being the idea that we are human and then something happens and all of a sudden we're not exactly human anymore. And I think particularly given that we're undergoing a pandemic, I can see why that eeriness about zombies and changes in humans could possibly increase. Now Michael Friedman, PhD, says that while... Undead creatures such as vampires and werewolves Have magical powers Zombies have a lifeless life And perhaps that's our fascination We're all afraid of a monotonous existence Filled with boredom, emptiness, and loneliness We can't avoid those feelings Any more than some people in zombie things Can avoid, you know, walkers He talks about walking dead a lot And, you know, we're all infected Boredom, loneliness, and emptiness Are part of all of our lives And they think that, you know the struggle to living in an undead world is similar to our struggle to fight through the boredom and monotony of our normal life. So I think that's kind of an interesting, more sociological theory in nature of how we relate to it. And I do like with these monsters how there's so many different theories about why we are so obsessed with them. But if you look around in the media, we definitely are a bit obsessed with different types of monsters. Now what I found interesting is that in the survey of American fears for 2020, 2021, zombies and ghosts were the only two creatures to actually rank in the top 100 American fears. So ghosts are listed as 88, zombies at 89, but they both have about 9.3% of people saying they are genuinely afraid of them. No, as I said, I do feel like there's something about zombies that almost seems credible. Like that there could be something that makes people more dangerous. And I think especially the pandemic could actually increase fear of zombies. A lot of us know pandemics happen, but didn't think that this would happen in our lifetime and I think that can really spur these feelings of like what else is going to happen, what's going to happen to people, we could change into something else. So now we're going to talk a bit about mummies. So unlike vampires and zombies, mummies are actually real. Right? Provably real. So a mummy is a dead human or animal whose soft tissues and organs have been preserved by either intentional or accidental exposure to chemicals, extreme temperatures, low humidity or lack of air so the body doesn't decay further. So many cultures people would mummify the dead, including ancient Egypt, which I think the A lot of people say that it's the obsession with ancient Egypt that really spur mummies as like this mythical creature as opposed to the actual just method of preparing bodies really came from. So this I found really interesting with the cultural idea of mummies as monsters. So Howard Carter and Lord Carnivon had been searching for a lost tomb carter had been searching carnavon had been paying for it and in november of 1922 they found what they sought the treasured filled room was the tomb of Tutankhamun. he was a pharaoh or a king of egypt who had died in the 1320s bc at just 18 or 19 years old the discovery captivated the world but lord carnavon did not get to enjoy it for long he died The next April, at the age of 56, it was six weeks after opening and entering the actual burial chamber of the tomb. Now, doctors said an infected mosquito bit him... And it was just a coincidence go- that he died so soon after going into the ancient tomb. However, and I did not know this, but a lot of the idea that mum- of mummies and curses and mummies as monsters came from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. He kind of threw forth the idea that an evil spirit caused his death and that Tutankhamun was so unhappy about his- the tomb that they took revenge from beyond the grave. Which I find so interesting. So why did people believe that there was a curse? And Ikram, who's a current researcher, said it's interesting and unusual. It's kind of boring to think that ancient Egyptians are just like us. You want them to have special powers, right? The people want there to be this idea that mummies can actually you know, curse people and can cause these things to happen. So one theory as to kind of why we believed this is, right, with Tutankhamun. I think we've all, a lot of us have heard of the curse, right, the idea that a bunch of people after going into his tomb all died mysteriously and it was revenge from him for his grave being disturbed. And a lot of this comes from the idea that our brains are hardwired to focus on cause and effect and really connect things together, which makes sense. That's how we learn different things, right? We learn that by, you know, babies learn that by moving their limbs, they can crawl and walk. We learn by doing and connecting things. However, sometimes things are just coincidences. Somebody dying from an infected mosquito six weeks after entering a tomb, could be related, could also not be related. So it is really interesting. Um, and basically, in order to prove that they would be connected, you would have to disprove that it's a coincidence. And in 2002, a researcher, Mark Nelson, actually went through and looked at all of the people who worked on the excavation of king Tutankhamun's curse right or his um, pyramid and his burial chambers to see if there was really a curse he identified 44 people from Europe who were in Cairo when the tomb was open 25 had entered the tomb or worked with the mummy the rest had done nothing that could expose them to a curse if one existed so about half of them were just there on the dig and about half of them were directly involved in entering the tomb and working with the mummy itself and both groups were found to have average life expectancies so people who encountered the mummy had no greater chance of dying suddenly um Carter who was in there, um, lived for another 16 years, died of cancer in his mid-60s, and he would think if there really was this curse, he would have been one of the first victims as one of the people who did discover the tomb. So I've kind of loved the idea that people just ran with the curse idea of this. You know, it is interesting how mummies came to as more of a movie creature. So another thing is that um, for a long time, mummies were actually ground up into a powder and used to treat illnesses. So they say, prior to 1750, mummy was associated primarily with the medicinal powder, but after the treatment became debunked somewhere between 1800 and 1900, um, or the hundred or so years between, were a stable environment for the mummy to become a cultural thing. It was an era when after the term was solidified in Western language, the corpses were perceived as rare archaeological resources to be displayed or or something to be revealed at the parties. So there were stories of people creating fake mummies since the medicinal powder was just ground up mummies, was used for medical treatment. After that, there became the idea that they must be preserved and respected. So it was an interesting cultural shift. And along with that... You know, in 1827, there was the first kind of creepy mummy story that was released titled The Mummy. A tale of a twenty-second, a tale of the twenty-second century was the first hint of modern and scary version of the mummy that would come to be accepted as the norm for most of the twentieth century. A quote from that book is: "The dried, distorted features of the mummy looked yet more radi- hideous than before when animated by human passions, and his deep, hollow voice, speaking a language he did not understand, fell heavily upon his ear like the groans of fiends." So that was kind of the. Her story of mummies—you know—they went from being this commonplace medical thing to a rare archaeological find to a sort of monster, largely af—you know—and that is interesting because it was actually before, kind of, the curse of King Tut, or King or you know, Tutankhamen, that this did happen. So. It's interesting that the book came out, maybe they're connected. So the groundwork had already been laid, but it wasn't until the rise of Egyptology in the late 19th century that mummy mythology took on its most defining characteristic, which was curses. The reason we fear mummies is more a story of vengeance than with terror right with zombies they tend to attack randomly and en masse similar with vampires don't tend to be known to have personal you know connections to the victim but mummies are deliberate directed for revenge so they're an entirely different thing and in most mummy horror movies if you look at it they're very specifically going after whoever disturbs them they're not just trying to kill everyone which could indicate just a general fear of revenge so this is really fascinating um so we're gonna wrap this up i thought it would be fun to end on you know compared to the fun goofy halloween fears what are people actually afraid of because i think horror movies express fear in a very safe controlled way right like you can use garlic to help you know garlic and mirrors and crosses to help keep a vampire away (laughs) you can you know shoot a zombie or live on a farm or do other things and if you want to avoid being attacked by mummies just don't go into a bunch of burial rooms and you should be fine as long as you don't disturb them right but the things that we're actually afraid of are very real and uncontrollable and this is interesting so this is from the 2020-2021 survey of american fears and these are the top 10 actual fears that Americans have. As you can see, the pandemic greatly influences this. So the number one fear that Americans have is corrupt government officials with 79.6% reporting being afraid. Number two, which in 2019 was number five, so it jumped up three spots, was people I love dying at 58.5%. Number three fear was a loved one contracting the coronavirus at 58%. Number four fear was people I love becoming seriously ill. So that had been the third the year year prior in 2019 went down one because specifically the coronavirus replaced that. So 57.3% are fear person they love becoming seriously ill number five fear was widespread civil unrest at 56.5 percent number six was a pandemic or major epidemic at 55.8 percent number seven is economic and financial collapse at 54.8 percent number eight down one spot from 2019 is cyber terrorism Number nine is pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes, which was number two in 2019. Says so you can see, the pandemic shifted a lot at 50.8%. And the number 10 fear that Americans have right now is biological warfare at 49.3%. So again, I find it really interesting. There's such a huge juxtaposition between... The things we fear in horror movies and monsters, and the things we fear in real life. And I think, especially with everything going on, it absolutely makes sense that we choose to explore a lot of these fears of monsters, because I think monsters are a lot safer to be afraid of than what we really have to fear. So, that is all I have to say for everyone. Happy Halloween, and thank you for getting spooky with us.